Good evening. Nice to uh, see you. It's nice, actually, more interactive, feels comfortable. <laughs> actually, these talks in the evening have a bit of a kind of stage-like feel to it, like this is the evening entertainment, so we're this is the show tonight. <laughs> Let's see what comes. <laughs> Why not? I'll uh, start with another uh, staff dining room. <laughs> Just before walking in here, someone asked uh, if I knew what my topic would be. And I told them, <laughs> I said, I'm going to talk on trust. And so they said, well, you know, on my ride today, on my bike, I trusted that my seat wouldn't fall off. And it did fall off. (laughs) And so on the whole ride back, he was having to navigate uh, (laughs) a seat without, a bike without a seat uh, attached, which is a little precarious. so trust, what do we, what do we trust in? Yeah, in a way, we actually do trust that the seat on the bike doesn't fall off. You know, we don't really even realize that, but there's that element that, you know, the material world is going to be there for us. You know, we sit down and there's a little bit of that sense of the cushion will be there as I sit down, as long as the yogi behind you doesn't (laughs) pull it away. (laughs) You know, if you ever are walking down steps and you misjudge whether or not there's an extra step or too few steps, if it's dark, you know, it's quite jarring to wake up in that moment and almost revealing how the mind was expecting something to be there. And we don't notice that. You know, we live in a lot more sense of certainty than this world really provides. You might just take a moment to consider what it is that you, where do you place your trust? In the normal daily life, a lot of our trust actually resides on conditions that we can't control. I trust I trust trust my material things to be there for me when I need them, or wealth. We trust in our uh, 
how people see us, you know, trying to build up our image in other people's minds. We trust that our pen will work when we want it to. You know, just last week, a week has gone by and half the country trusted one outcome might happen and the other half another outcome. And of course, that's an enormous setup for a lot of grief, a lot of confusion. I think before I came to the Dharma, a lot of my trust was kind of uh, unconscious, uh, wishful thinking, somehow hoping that things would work out. And I was kind of a romantic, I think, conditioned by endless movies and stories. Everything will work out. And so if things aren't working out, there must be something wrong. What's gone wrong? Why isn't life going according to the the plot? You know, the plot that we imagine or the plot that our parents or culture tells us how things are supposed to unfold. And then on the other side, Maybe we've lost the sense of trust. We've been wounded and betrayed enough times. The heart doesn't feel trustworthy, doesn't know how to trust. And in a way, both sides, trusting in the impossible to happen, and also not knowing how to trust. I think that's part of what lands us in a sense of uncertainty. There's no way to move onward, have a path that is onward leading. So not that you've been keeping track, but some of you are nine weeks into being here. And others are three weeks. 
you know, as the mind is getting more familiar, just being here, being in this environment of mindfulness. I think it's very easy to not be sure where this is leading at times, hearing so many words, Dharma words, either from a teacher or just swirling around in one's own mind. The mind gets very complicated again. I felt like a lot of my early years of practice, it's like I was trying to squeeze the nectar of the Dhamma out of the moment. Like if I just squeezed hard enough, some precious insight would drip out. You know, so we can get kind of fragile or tiptoeing around in our own mind and body. I used to welcome people up at the forest refuge and it's so quiet up there. It's really quiet here and it's really quiet up there. Um, So quiet that this seems like a phenomenon of people tiptoeing around at times. And one of the things that I had uh, started sharing with yogis as they arrived was that the silence isn't a fragile silence. It's a kind of a robust silence that can hold all the conditions that we bring. So learning how to trust into this silence so it's not precious that actually receives what arises and what's present and alive in the mind and heart. That's the beauty of silence. Things can manifest and they always do manifest out of the present moment and then they cease. So this word trust that I'm <clears throat> using a lot is uh, one way of translating sada, which is faith, the more common translation. I like, I like trust and confidence. You know, for you to be here in this length of a retreat, you already have a lot of trust and confidence in something, some aspect of the Dhamma. This is what allows the path and practice to unfold. It gets us into 
the stream into this field of beginning to uh, wake up, take on these teachings a bit and trying to put them into effect. It's actually a little hard for me to try to remember the state of mind before I had a path like this. Because I think a little bit, my life was much more of a random walk. In some ways careening from one life experience to another and really at the mercy of chance You know, and getting elated if things go well. And getting upset and depressed if things don't go well. And that makes sense if we don't know what the underlying characteristics or taste of reality is about. If we don't know the nature of something, then we don't know how to relate to it. And it's interesting that learning how to relate to the way things are It's not like a surrender or a giving up. I find it immensely empowering to be able to be right with experience. Let it in, feel it, know it as it is. One of the main things that we rely on is this sense of self, this feeling of being in control of this body and mind. 
even one day. Just a simple day that passes by. We wake up and we really have no idea what's going to come. And it's so easy to be in the illusion that we're somehow directing the show, you know, this personal show, and that it's much more in my ability to uh, control outcomes. You know, and in this space, you've been able to be with so many changing phenomenons, so many moods and emotions have come and gone in one day. Moments of mindfulness, moments of being more in thought, moments of seeing and hearing. And so much of that was really unpredictable. This is what we say is causes and conditions continually coming together, arising, yielding this moment, moment after moment. And then we're either knowing this procession or we're not. It's very simple. And it's interesting what this little bit of understanding allows in the heart, that conditions are happening. On a retreat, someone recently, uh, mother, young mother who was raising a few kids was on retreat and in hearing this term again and again, causes and conditions, and nature is unfolding. She said that it finally dawned on her that all of her efforts in some ways to control everything, and what she described as being the master of the universe, could fall away. And there's a sense of a little bit of a shift and, and trusting in conditions, knowing that her job is to put in the conditions that are gonna work, do the best she can, but it's not in her capacity to control the situation, to make things happen. And this is a basic tendency as well that we have in our spiritual practice. You know, so we start off putting in the effort that we need to, to stay awake and to remember the present moment's experience, stay with a breath or two, the mind darts away, we come back. So there's a lot of personal efforting that we engage in. 
And this is a necessary part of the practice. And then it can be useful to explore a little bit of the shift from doing our practice. Just allowing the Dhamma to be and being awake, receiving what arises next. In discussion with one yogi today, we were talking about now this, how this is starting to feel like home. IMS now feels more like home being in this retreat environment. Yeah, so I'm a little bit walking around as if at home, more complacent happens to have 80 other roommates here with him. It's just very familiar experiences. And those kind of familiar experiences can start to feel mundane and ordinary. And this is a kind of a place in, at this point in the practice to begin to open to now that it feels almost like home. What is it like to live the Dhamma? To live in a field of awareness, ordinary moments, but staying in some ways sensitive and receptive to the unknown. It's trusting moments of experience to present themselves, not needing to reach out and chase or grab something that isn't here. Most of our life is going to be spent in very ordinary moments, nothing spectacular. How does the mind, heart, not just space out and dull?
It's like a basic movement of the mind is either kind of leaning towards experience, leaning in, so it's a bit of toppling forward to the next moment, the next moment. Once this is over, once I'm through this, or once I get this, or once I get away from this, leaning back. And the images of the Buddhas and Kuan Yin's and other uh, noble beings that are created, they're always so poised, just balanced in the present moment. The feeling is the world could crumble around such a being and the mind would meet it. You know, that kind of steadiness and calm and clarity gives a capacity to, to be with conditions. What is reliable? What's trustworthy? I was thinking of phrases that I often would say that I would use of what I trust. You know, like, I trust you. I trust you. And that's a really beautiful quality to have in the heart and the mind. But it's also not very clear. It's not understanding conditions. I think as my mind has gotten more settled in what is really trustworthy, then I know what I trust. I trust wholesome qualities of mind to have a beneficial result. Unwholesome qualities of mind will hurt, will cause harm inwardly and probably in the surroundings as well. And when we say that we trust in the Sangha, that trust is really in the qualities that a Sangha develops. If a Sangha is not developing wholesome qualities, 
then naturally there'll be states of mind that are not not wholesome. That will lead to some harm. And this is really how we can begin to understand people better. And the idea then of judging, blaming, is really our own delusion of not understanding the causes and conditions that have come together. It's natural if fear of hatred, if that arises in minds, the results will be a certain way. What that allows for one's own mind and capacity is to really bring a sense of clarity, of purpose, and how to respond when another mind is agitated, confused. I think of Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, who was imprisoned for so many years, house arrest. And someone, a reporter, someone interviewing her had asked her, you know, what kind of retaliation she'd like to take on the generals if she'd like to tear them down. Yeah, and she said, that wouldn't serve anything. I want to lift them up. That kind of clarity, what really is important, that's available. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges as meditators is how to keep the practice very simple, allowing it to be enough that we're knowing the present moment, something is being known. For a long time, it's like I would see that the mind was aware, but it was always somehow involved in the experience, trying to do something to it, entangled with the moment in one way or another. Just exploring that. What involvement does awareness need right now? If awareness simply recognizes what's happening Allowing that to be enough.
It's really ordinary moments of mindfulness that lead to our understanding of this uh, experience, this process of life. Remembering uh, an insight that um, <coughs> Sainabhutajaniya talks about. Um, he describes being in the shower one time and I was just using the soap that was offered. Um, probably wasn't in a Western center because it was a scented soap. So he smelled the soap, which is unusual experience. You might've forgotten that you can smell soap. But this is a a scented soap. And as he showered, uh, the aroma gave rise to smelling. And he said he had this profound insight that it's the nose that smells. And he felt so excited by that insight, he wanted to go and tell the rest of his family, it's the nose that smells. (laughs) Now he knew that he was kind of in an insight territory and that saying that was probably not going to lead to any kind of um, awe of his family. It's the nose that smells and the eyes see and it's the ears that hear. (laughs) (laughs) But on the simple level of experience, there was some understanding. Just very ordinary cause and effect conditions, the scent, giving rise to the experience of smelling. So we're not needing to try and have really spectacular experiences because the ordinariness of experience is always the Dhamma. It's always revealing itself. Because of our conditioning, layers of delusion, confusion, our mind isn't resting in that simplicity. We get very complicated. I had my own bathroom insight once. <laughs> Actually, was, I was a monk at that time and decided I would uh, wash the, the toilets in the men's dormitory. And this group of uh, my fellow yogis, male yogis, weren't the best, I guess, at um, keeping it sparkling clean. Um, 
But I actually think it was more than that. It was just years of kind of getting older and the porcelain getting a little bit darker. And so as I decided, I would really try to rejuvenate, bring it back to its original form. So right after our alms round in the morning, I kind of got to it and started scrubbing. Um, And I didn't leave that bathroom for five hours at one. I was just on one, those squatting ones that you squat down. So I was just, you know, scrubbing away. Simple activity, just scrubbing. And my mind started oscillating between expecting it to get clean and just scrubbing, just simple scrubbing. And at that time, the difference was as if they were on totally different poles, 180 degree difference, reality completely different. On one side was really the arising of dukkha. And I could almost smell it in the air, the stress and the struggle. And the other was completely engaged. But fully present, no expectation, immersed in the movement. And I seem like I allowed the mind to kind of touch back and forth just to explore it. What is it like to oscillate towards needing something to happen and to be in a state of agitation and then let the mind rest again and be from the outward appearance, very little changed. But inwardly, so different. So the moral of the story is spend more time in the toilet. Tejaniya said, the simplicity of this moment holds everything. The simplicity of this moment holds everything. To really feel that requires some trust. This is good enough what's here. You don't need to change what's arising. Can we know it? Things as they are.
Maya Angelou says, have enough courage to trust love one more time and always one more time. Have enough courage to trust love one more time and always one more time. And what does that mean to you to trust love? Trusting the capacity to be with conditions. Can I be with this? Do I trust the ability of mindfulness, awareness to receive experience, to hold when it rises? The difficult and challenging the unknown, the edge. Can I trust in the mystery of things? And let's uh, continue sitting together for a few moments.
the simplicity of this moment holds everything. Just opening to the sense of trusting what's here, allowing that to be good enough. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.